This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with the Director of Performance for OL Rain, Andrew Wiseman. He discusses session design in order to help physical adaptations, how they manage individual development plans and athlete goals, as well as his current PhD research. I hope you enjoy. First of all, Andrew, really appreciate you jumping on. On, on obviously St. Patrick's Day, we've got a little bit back and forth. How how are things your end? Are you safe and well out out in the US? Yeah, great. Thanks. Um, firstly, thanks for for inviting me on. It's uh, I'm always honoured to be asked to come on to uh, podcast. So thank you very much. Uh, everything's going well here. We're just uh, obviously St. Patrick's Day today, um, but we are the players have a day off today. Um, and we're just waiting for, for everyone to come back in tomorrow. Um, we're due to start our games in the next three to four weeks for the, the NWSL Challenge Cup. So it's a little period where we can just, uh, after the, the six weeks of pre-season that we've had, we're just relaxing the players and, and getting ready for the tournament and the season that's, that's up and coming. But generally things are good here, um, out here in Washington State. Um, you know, with the COVID situation, uh, things have have got a lot better. So it's it's encouraging. Perfect. So I guess to start with, for people that might not necessarily know you or know your background, you just want to talk through, I guess, what your um, current role is and where you're based. And then I guess give a little summary in terms of how you may have got there and some, I guess, highlight stops along the way. Yeah, sure. Uh, so... Currently, my my title is uh, Director of Performance for OL Rain um, here in Tacoma in Washington, um, playing in the NWSL. I joined here at uh, the end of December, uh, so quite new here. They'd they'd look to restructure their performance and or health and performance, as we call it, um, areas with myself and the Director of Rehab. Um, plus some other staff that we've recruited uh, with a psychologist, nutritionist, uh, an athletic trainer and a masseur. Plus we also have a, a chiropractor and various other staff that we work with. So the um, I was asked, uh, I, I took on this role um, and before that I was at uh, Utah Royals in Salt Lake City. So I came to the US in 2019. Um, I joined the Royals uh, who unfortunately aren't any, anymore um but i was attracted i was i was at exeter city uh, just before that and before that i was at celtic and, and in charlton and stevenage and uh, but I, what, I remember the 2019 women's world cup and obviously the usa are well known as being the best team in the world and um myself and the players do talk about it how you know the european women's game is is, is you know they're catching up there's teams catching up but uh, I remember turning to my, I wasn't working at the time and I, I turned to my mum and we were watching the USA and I said to her, you know, if a job came up in the US, especially in the women's game, I would take it. And she said, oh, really? And I said, yeah. And and this job came up and, oh, sorry, the Royals came up um, and I didn't want to turn it down. Um, so that, and that, and the, that brought me to the USA. Uh, before that, as I said, I, I, I spent a season in Vexit City. Uh, down there in Devon, uh, League Two, very much different to what I'd been used to because I'd, I'd, I'd gone there from Celtic 
um, where I worked with the women and in the International Academy there. So um, it was very different, um, but a, a real learning experience because, you know, um, when you see the facilities that I've maybe become accustomed to, um, you know, and then you go to a great club like Exeter, you know, brilliant people there where you have to think on your feet a lot. And I think... I think I was their first ever full-time sports scientist, stroke strength and conditioning coach. So I only clue in the title is in the title there that there was an awful lot to be done. Uh, but we built a gym, and you know, I had some real positive influences. Um, you know, in the role that, that I had there, you know, working with the physios and sports therapists to try and build a, a performance environment. Um, my my academic background is um, I was really lucky. I um, I, the first degree was part funded by the PFA um, and then I finished that degree uh, well actually no that's that's not strictly true I, I stopped that degree because I was living in Ireland at the time and, and playing and coaching over there and I was like oh, do you know what uh, I can't deal with this and then I came back to the UK and, and, and got another severe injury um, and I thought I was really interested in my rehab and so I went back to Manchester Met and I said well, what do you think about me coming back and they said well you'll you'll probably lose your funding but so I thought no I'm going to do it and I graduated there with first class honours um, which was brilliant because a lot of people on my course were still playing as pros uh, so it was really good to to be in and around that environment um, and then I started my PhD in uh, January uh, sorry uh, September uh, last year uh, in a slight change from physiology uh, in organizational psychology um, and looking at you know uh, at the moment just investigating the stressors on uh, um, support staff and uh, and looking at that comparing it with the, the stresses that players go through so um, it's, it's obviously a long project um, and maybe my question is changing quite a lot uh, but something I'm, 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 you know, I'm really enjoying. Nice I think we'll definitely touch on that again because I think it'd be interesting to kind of hear the, the research you've done so far around that area. I think a good starting point now will be where you are now so in terms of your current role um, and what you're currently doing what does that look like from a day-to-day -day? what do you oversee um, and I guess what's your aim for the players within your department what was your vision for the, for those guys that come under your care yeah um so my role is quite unique in some respects there uh, that i'm sort of positioned between management and coaching or the coaching staff and management and uh what they call the front office here so um a lot of my role is advising or uh, or talking to the the coaching staff about the sessions the session plans working out the physical components of that uh, advising on you know the status of our players from a from a sort of recovery or fatigue um shall we say well, fatigue is a a very broad area uh, but we'll, we we collect data uh, on the players my job is to interpret that data for the coaches and whether that be the gps the wellness or some objective measures we use to look at sort of muscular fatigue um, and be able to report that to the coaches and say, okay, this session might need modified or we may have players that have uh, special requirements and we will modify the sessions for those. And that could be someone at the end stage of their rehab. It could be someone that, you know, um, has a little bit of an issue and we just modify things. So one of the overall aims here is to build a performance environment 
and the players have have been really good uh, because I think it's easy that they just get a unit thrown on them, a GPS unit, and, and nothing's ever really explained. You know, it's it's not uncommon for a player to ask why. You know, they're submitting wellness data and uh, doing other things without understanding, you know, um, what's underpinning it all. So we're very much hands-on here with the players. Um, I also oversee all the, the sort of strength and conditioning programs for the players as well. Um, and we've just built a new uh, gym area for the players. So um, mainly, you know, interpreting the data and, 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 and informing coaches also how the players are responding to training. You know, was that an easy session for one? Was it uh, maybe not? So, you know, was it difficult for one player? Um, and helping them with the design of sessions to to physically get the best out of the players. If, for an example, I was working with um, eight players yesterday who are just a little bit behind uh, due to, you know, being away international duty or um, coming back from certain things or, uh, you know, maybe had a quarantine period that was extended, whatever that was, uh, I was working solely with them to, to try and get them up to speed physically. Uh, yes, then that was, that was a pitch-based session. Um, so my role is very varied. Um, I, I kind of, I'm very much integrated into the coaching staff as to, you know, what they're planning, what they've designed, and then have my input of how we can get the best out of players physically. So I guess around the data and around the, the wellness information you're able to gather now I appreciate obviously a lot of the actual data itself is going to be confidential but in terms of metrics that you're able to gather and information that then informs your thinking moving forward what type of information do you and are you able to gather from the players and how do you use this in a way to obviously adapt your sessions or adapt their schedule accordingly yeah so uh, very common practice to use a wellness questionnaire and that'll be uh, mood stress fatigue soreness on a scale of one to five um so what will happen is the players will submit that data and then the questions that we would ask would be or when we look at that data is you know if, if it's soreness which is part of an adaptation pro, um, process anyway uh, but is it unusually high uh, we have you know uh, the statistics we use we we see if they're deviating away from their norms uh, is that an issue? Does it need an intervention? We also use objective, uh, some, you know, like a CMJ, uh, an eccentric hamstring strength. And then we'll be looking at, you know, does that session now need modifying for that player? Um, based on, on previous sessions, is there an issue? Is there something that we need to know about? Uh, is there a lifestyle issue? Is there something else that's going on? So I think wellness data is uh, maybe not, I think it's very sensitive to training loads. So you will see trends of like a higher day. Of course, you're going to see, you know, maybe higher soreness and fatigue, maybe some sleep disruptions, uh, especially in pre-season. So we put context to it as to whether, you know, it is a result of the session or is it something that we need to investigate further? So I think wellness data needs to be taken, certainly needs to be looked at in, maybe with some objective measures, but also, you know, as a conversation starter. Um, and I think that's very much the way we view it. You know, what is, what's causing these, these issues, you know, um, on the other side of that, there are days when you would expect someone to report high fatigue and high soreness. So it's not a problem. Um, and it's trying to put that together to, to understand our athletes better uh, and their responses because same training session, two different players will respond completely differently and gradually, over time, we can spot some trends and, and answer questions of whether this is normal for someone. Um, and then if need be, make interventions, whether that be, 
um, extra physical work or, or a recovery intervention, whatever it is that, that we need to do to help the player be at their, their peak. And in terms of physiological data that you're able to gather, in terms of what they may do during sessions, etc., obviously you mentioned GPS there, what type of information are you able to gather during sessions or during the workouts that then informs what you're doing moving forward? Yeah, so uh, we use heart rate um, and then we'll use heart rate uh, and RPE. Uh, so RPE being a subjective measure, but um, for us, we will monitor it and there may be some um, sessions where we need to be sub-maximal uh, and we want players to, to be below a certain heart rate uh, threshold. Uh, some we want to be over that, you know, because we want to stress them. Within that, we also use a heart rate recovery test. Uh, so we'll do that approximately once a month. Uh, and it's a quick five minute um, run over uh, 25 meters out, 25 meters back. Then they have two minutes just to stand still and we'll observe changes in heart rate dropping. Uh, and that gives a good indicator of uh, aerobic fitness and also um, recovery status. So obviously the quicker your heart recovers the um the fitter you are um in essence uh, i wouldn't say everything is completely causal it, you know physiology is incredibly complex uh, but that's how we'll look at it and we'll try and understand how the how the players responding is there something we need to do with that player um so they're the kind of measures we look at uh, within training and when you're looking at uh, muscular fatigue that you mentioned earlier on um what tests do you have to be able to see, you know, if people are struggling with muscular fatigue? And I, I guess moving forward, what you're trying to do is preempt injuries and hopefully either prehab them so it doesn't happen or give them the subsequent rest that then allows them not to get injured. So what yeah. kind of um, tests, et cetera, are you putting the players through in order to gain that data? Yeah, so uh, we're using, we obviously we use a CMJ, uh, counter movement jump on the four sticks. Uh, we also look at eccentric hand, hamstring strength, um, but uh, we'll also do a single leg jump as well. Um, now, it, you know, it doesn't take a scientist to work out if there may be a drop in that. Um, in looking at neuromuscular fatigue, if there's a slight drop or outside of their norms, then we can look at that and say, okay, maybe that's what it is. Now, it's, it doesn't really affect the... If we know the training plan, then we'll be able to say, look, you know, we'll speak to the player, how they're feeling. It could be they're just not... It's not their day. Uh, I guess it's the use of statistics and statistical insights as we can see how significant that is. If it's, you know, uh, we look at it as over one and a half standard deviations, it will flag up on our system that maybe we need to look at it a little bit further. Um but it doesn't, we, we kind of have a philosophy here that, you know, we need to keep everyone training uh, as much as possible. It, 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 you know, it, it's happened a lot over the years that we just end up pulling everyone out. You know, I'm not saying that we do that, but, you know, some sports scientists and some players have told you oh, they're pulling me out every, every 10 minutes. For us, it's not about that. For us, it's to be able to put the, the athlete in a, in a safe environment to get the most out of them in training. Uh, rarely do we, we we pull someone out but we may have we may go back to that coaching uh, to the coaching staff and say look you know this there's quite a lot of significant uh, drops in counter movement jumps so maybe cut one block off that you know block of four that you were going to do in this exercise and, and and leave the coaches to make a decision with us 
Um, but again, you know, it, it sounds like music is an excuse, but it's so complex because everybody responds differently. Uh, you know, so I think you have to observe things over time and then try and get informed uh, decisions as to the status of that player at that time. What I think that can lead to is when we go into intense fixtures, um, we'll be able to see who responds well to maybe three games a week, who doesn't, and um, in some respects influence the uh, the coaching staff, you know, to, to maybe not absolutely fry a player uh, over three games in a week, you know. Um, so I think it's very much about those little nudges, those influences, and, 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 and having informed um, decision-making but I think the data helps us ask better questions as opposed to, uh, you know, um, give us the answers, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. And I think what's interesting there is the adaptations you're able to place on, on sessions, um, which relate to that, which I think is a really interesting one. Um, do you want to talk a little bit around how you, you help generate um sessions or adapt sessions within those parameters and i guess also to discuss what type of physical output you're looking through and i've said this a few times on my podcast so some people will be sick of me saying it but i saw a presentation from adam owens um mm -hmm. who worked with chris coleman a lot and he did a lot of work and spent a lot around area sizes and how they can adapt and potentially some of the issues that Gareth, may may, Gareth Bale may have had injury-wise being linked to the type of training that was being done. I think if you look at Eden Hazard at the moment, Zidane's just come out and said he was never injured before he came here. All of a sudden, he's getting injured every other week with us. So, that you know, there's got to be something going on. So for you, in your role, do you want to talk about how you can adapt the sessions and then the kind of considerations you're making with the coaches regarding area sizes or type of sessions or type of repetition of movement etc yeah so uh that's a great question because uh, adam's work is is great um i've followed a lot of adam's work he's he's also here in seattle now with the sounders um so hopefully we'll get a chance to to grab a coffee together but um i guess one of what i've used here and what i used at a, a previous club is small sided games to get the conditioning now if you manipulate time and space you'll get different outputs. Um, and I've been talking to the head coach about that today. So if you increase the pitch size um, and, and, and the numbers, you're likely to pick up more high-speed running. Now, there's certain times in the week where you don't want to pick that up excessively. Conversely, when you bring that space size in uh, and the numbers drop, you're looking at more of um, anaerobic outputs. Um, you know, so what we did was produce a document for the coaches that will give you the, the dimensions um, and classified it as small, medium and large. So let's just say um, a 1v1 small is 10 by 15 meters. OK, uh, and then we'll uh, say medium would be um, 15 by let's just say 15 by 15 and then large could be 20 by 20 just for argument's sake uh within that then uh within the the sort of document we have it will tell them the what physical output is and then uh, there was some research done looking at what the technical and tactical is so we know that you're probably going to get high volume of shots um in that you're probably not going to get much headers uh but you'll get a lot of touches on the ball uh and then we do that right away up to 11 v 11 so uh, that helps us when we talk with the coach and say, look, you know, if you go with these small sided games, you're going to get these outputs. 
um, which isn't particularly rocket science, uh, you know, but uh, <laughs> saying that, you know, I, I, I sometimes, and I've worked with coaches before that they just solely set on playing 11 v 11. It's like, well, you know, if you keep doing that, then you're just doing the same thing over and over and over again. There's, you know, we talk about volume intensity, session density, but there's also variability. When you go into really intense patterns of play, players need to, to be able to handle that. And what you'll see is throughout a game, um, which is something I'm talking to the players about tomorrow, you, you'll go through these little periods and then you'll have those five or 10 really intense periods where your axles, D cells and things like that will be higher because they're, you know, uh, these little passages of play. So they need to be able to handle those demands as well as, you know, opening a pitch up uh, to 11 v 11. So we've produced quite a few little graphics, some of them based on Adam's work um, and other authors to be able to, to, for the coaches to understand that, you know, when we're preparing for a session, um, for example, the warm up will be dependent on what they're going to do. So if we know that, that it's going to be a very small space day, um, we know we're going to get quite a lot of changes, directions, axial D cells, uh, a higher heart rate. We know that the warm up needs to be um in distance shorter and we'll put in little d cells we might bring the ball and then we might play the ball and press the player um little rondos and stuff like that and manipulate the, the spaces and time there um, so that the players are pretty well prepared for the the session that's coming um so that's the way we try to look at it and and, and work with the coaches okay because it's easy to just do let's say a 4v4 and a 20 by 25 and do that every week uh, I know uh, what we did at Utah was reduce it over three weeks. So we would gradually reduce the, uh, the space over three weeks and then go back around in a sort of cycle. So just a three week loading cycle because space and time uh, will dictate the, um, the, the outputs. Uh, you know, one of the biggest things that I speak to coaches about is, um, you know, the time. If you reduce the time, you're going to reduce the volume. The density and the intensity of the session is, is, is different. So, you know, when you have a high intensity, small space day, uh, the players are going to be working pretty hard. Uh, but the volume won't be that high, but the intensity is. Yeah, I think it's, it's a really interesting concept. I know as a player, I used to hate like the two hour long sessions. For me, yeah. just being time on feet, by the end of it, I've been acting equally. I used to hate doing doubles. Um, yeah, I'd be yeah. fine if I did a session, then a running session after before lunch. But after lunch, I used to really struggle with that. But yeah. some players loved it. And psychologically, I, was, I don't understand why. But then when you look into it more, it's probably to do with body types, your recovery types, all that type of stuff that plays into those factors. Um, in terms of for you, I imagine part of your role is obviously you're not just going to want to maintain the players over a season. Ideally, you want to be in a position where you can continually improve them and improve them from year to year. How do you manage that around, obviously, essentially you've got to be able to perform on a weekend or you've got to be able to perform on a Monday or Wednesday night. So how do you manage your needs or wants of putting them in a position where they're constantly improving physiologically um, compared to obviously having the performance aspect alongside that as well. Yeah, I mean it's 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 difficult, um, very difficult, I mean, especially in a, in a sport like uh, like football, which is chaotic, um, uh, you know, complex. Um, every every player responds differently to every training session. 
um, and, and games as well. Uh, it's heavily, when you look at games, they're heavily uh, influenced by tactics or you know formations or playing styles, which is where you want to look at it. There's situational factors, you know, red cards or um, you know play being held up for whatever reason, uh, injury, whatever. Um, and then you've got to get down to it and say, well, is that player improving? Um, again, the data helps us to see that it's not linear either. Uh, and in season, I think someone once told me that if you can, you're really looking to just maintain in the season. But if you if you have a drop off of five or ten percent, you've done quite well because of the sheer volume of fixtures. Fixtures dictate everything. So that then means that when we look at loading cycles, once all our fixtures are in, where can we get certain windows of opportunity? And um, I did a presentation last year, well, nearly a year ago now, so, uh, and I was talking about that, that um, being able to find the windows of opportunity of when to load players, when to, you know, deload them, and uh, when you get them, take them take those windows of opportunity. And uh, for me, it's, it all depends on a player's game demands as well. Your, your wingers are going to be, uh, well, fullbacks now as well. Uh, their outputs will be a lot higher than, than your forwards or your centre-backs. Um, that saying, forwards will probably tend to do a little bit more sprint distance. Your centre-backs don't because they, they move laterally. They don't get as much high-speed running. Uh, so that comes into the positional side of things. Are, are they getting an adequate stimulus across the week? Now, if you compare small-sided games to um, generic running, you can control the running. Um, you can control the dose that the players get, um, whatever, you know, I tend to use interval methods, but um, you can control that. Whereas in small-sided games, it, you can't control what's going on and then you can't keep stopping it to say, you know, this person's, uh, you know, doing X amount and um, it needs to come out. I mean, you could do that if you want, but you're just going to end up doing it all the time. So I think it's uh, us supporting the coaching staff and being flexible in our methods to support them. Um, but that can be, I mean, the live monitoring really helps with that. Um, you know, it's not if, if someone's gone over 50 metres of their high speed running, it's like, it's, okay, fine. You know, 100 metres, whatever it is, what we determine, you know, can the player... Um, tolerate that for a start are they robust and resilient enough to to tolerate it and then in those following days how are they responding and if we can do we need to to modify uh, based on that on that on that player i think sometimes we get too caught up in in metrics um you know i've, I've said a few times i think it's good heart's law that you know when um when a measure becomes a target it's not a measure anymore and all GPS does is allow us to measure what somebody's else, somebody's doing in a in a in a session, uh, and that helps us make better informed choices. I think if you look at certain models of of training, you know the classic one, uh, probably a little bit more of a British model is you know Sunday Wednesday off for a Saturday game. There's nothing wrong with that. You can get a really good high loading session on a Tuesday. They've got a day off to recover. You probably lose a little bit tactically. Uh, of the work because the tactical work tends to come maybe at the end of the week or Thursday, Friday, and you're into game. Tactical periodization will be different. They might do a, a game, a recovery day, a day off, and then lead in sort of, uh, you know, maybe Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday for a Saturday game. Um, so that it, I think it depends on, obviously the coach's philosophy is important and how much you, you know, you put emphasis on, on tactical or physical. Um, 
So I don't think there's a right or wrong way, but there are certain things that you need to adjust, you know, and there's certain things you probably wouldn't do on a Thursday, Friday, if you've got a game on a Saturday, um, you know, and there has been, I think people have tried to look at that, you know, does it affect performance? I've seen really high loading weeks, had an absolute worldie of a performance. I've seen some high loading weeks and, and you know, be terrible. You, it's very hard to predict those things. It's hard to predict performance because there's so many things that can, that can influence it. So I think you have to have a really good, uh, ask good questions and, and look at the insights as to whether things are detrimental to the player. Probably went a bit off, off topic there, but... No, that's fine. I think what something you've said that's interesting there is the tactical side affecting the physical side. How much um, does that affect your work? Because I imagine the needs of the players is going to be very different if you're sitting in a low block Mourinho-esque, as I'm a Spurs fan, I can say that. Um, you know, low block and then looking to counter compared to your Liverpool who are going to go and try and press you all over the field and go crazy. So in terms of the work you're putting the players through, particularly during this pre-season phase, etc., how much of that is in relation to the tactical and technical demands that the coach is putting in? And how do you factor that into this type of sessions you're delivering? Yeah, so when, when I first joined here, I spoke to the head coach about what his uh, philosophy was. I think that's important because uh, when you polarise the physical with the technical and tactical, it's just becomes a, it becomes a reductionist approach, um, which maybe isn't the best approach. Uh, some people might argue differently, but um, it's trying to integrate the two and what style do, does he play? How does he see it? And how can I build that into the training? Um, he spoke about the previous club that I was at and, and a pressing game that we played. And, and did you work on that in training? Yeah, we did through small sided games, you know, working in those small spaces, working on a press. I, 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 I don't buy into maybe technical coaches will, well, I don't know, I was one once, but maybe they'll uh, dismiss this. But I think every small sided, medium sided, long sided game, there's a coaching opportunity. You know, if you're working on uh, negative transition, maybe, uh, then then you could put those into those small spaces. They, uh, if you're working on uh, transition through the midfield um, or, yeah, transition out wide or whatever it is, you, you can then open that space out. Uh, what I think my role um, or the way I see my role is I will be able to say to the coaches, OK, um, don't let it run for 30 minutes. Uh, because the outputs will go through the roof, you know, give them uh, adequate rest and maybe do eight to nine, maybe 10, whatever it is, quality repetitions to get that you're coaching in, but also be aware of the physical side of it. And the it comes back to obviously what you're saying about Adam Owen, you know, changing the space and time and, and the relative playing area um, will influence um, physical outputs. So making the coaches aware of that, you know, small possession drills where you don't really move anywhere. You know, they, they, they don't move, particularly move anywhere, rondos or whatever, they don't go anywhere. Um, open that out, that would change. You know, if you're constantly switching play, um, then things are going to change. So uh, I think you have to look across, look at the game model, look at the physical outputs or the attributes of the players and try and work out um, how you can complement that. Because the head of performance, director of performance, sports scientist, physical preparation, whatever title you've got, your job is to support the head coach and his his game model. 
um, and then build your physical around that. I think it's got to be technical, tactical first and physical gets built around that because we, we have seen, um, I think one of the classic ones was uh, the difference in Brendan Rodgers to Jurgen Klopp and it's been quite well cited. Liverpool got a lot of injuries um, after that, it's not knocking anyone at all, but Klopp played a completely different from a session game to that high intensity, high press game. Are the players adequately prepared for that? Um, so I think it's understanding your head coach's philosophy and how you build the physical around him, not just because you want to hit numbers. And how do you differentiate from player to player or position to position? Because as you alluded to earlier, particularly if you're doing a high pressing example, your you're nine, your seven and 11 are going to get through a lot of running, closing players down. Whereas, and I can say this because I used to be one, your slow plodding around centre-halves might not be doing as much, but obviously being aware of the ball in behind. So how do you di differentiate in terms of the sessions you're doing with, with, with the players to make sure that they're getting adequate loading for what they're specifically going to have to do during a game? Yeah, I mean, so I've always, when I always talk to centre-backs, you know, they're, they're the ones that maybe don't particularly take to the long sprints or high speed running. Uh, and I finished as a centre back. So, I, you know, the last thing you want is a ball popped in behind you. But what, what you'll say to them, what I've said to them is actually, you know, you may be exposed to that. So you need to train for it because that may happen. It may not, not happen. You know, you, you know, one, why do we expose players to above 90% of their maximum speed on a, on a regular basis? Well, firstly for hamstring health, um, but not just that, because they don't often hit their max speed or they don't often hit over maybe 90, 95% in a game. Suddenly, you need to be prepared for it if that happens. Uh, so that physical preparation is important. Um, positional is, is difficult because, you know, we, we, may, um, we may rotate players in and out if we've concerns over someone. So we might say to the head coach, if you've got two in that position, just rotate them in and out rather than piling balls down side for someone to run onto um you know so try and rotate players in and out do they need a little bit less do they need more um and then we'll take it from there on what their positional demands are so uh, one way of looking at it is across previous seasons um, and, uh, and trying to determine what that person is capable of because if you try you know sports science we should use the scientific principles to push people as hard as they can. We should be pushing them to their limits and improving them. Um, but you have to be respectful of the quick changes around in fixtures and, and position. The, the positional demands are changing. Um, sort of the, the dichotomy you have with that is that the women's game is not particularly well researched. There's a real lack of research. So a lot of data, um, and I was talking to a player about this yesterday, uh, a lot of if there is such a thing as normative data, you'd be looking at internationals because the international standard, their outputs will be higher. Um, conversely, it may be different with the US women's team because they're so much better than anyone else. And, you know, I would be fair to say that the quality opposition comes when they get into tournaments, maybe not so much in, in qualifying and, and friendly games. And that's not knocking any other nation. That's just the way things are. Um, so you, I think trying to find positional averages could, can be difficult. 
Um, but we have used international data and kind of seen that as a benchmark, because if you look at the success of the US women's national team, I think in 2019, um, and my, my, my good friend Dawn Scott, and, you know, the phys they were streets above everyone else physically. Um, you know, that was, that was pretty clear. However, read the physical report of that, teams were catching up. So um, I think we're getting there in the women's game. But it's very, um, it can be difficult to determine, uh, you know, positional averages, I guess. I think that's interesting because obviously I, I saw in the media and I can't remember the lady's name, unfortunately, but she transitioned from US soccer to the England team. Dawn, yeah. Dawn Scott, yeah. 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 And one of the things she said was they're not fit compared to the players that I've been, just been working with. They're not even the top ones wouldn't be the top ones in the US ones. I think that's a really interesting point you made there. Um, and then, yeah, and, and then the argument, like, and we've spoke about this a lot here, the, the game in Europe is a lot more technical and tactical, whereas in the US, because of the college system, you know, the physical attributes, you're, you're getting well-developed athletes when they, you know, maybe get a pro contract or should be well-developed. Um, so it, it is different. Uh, in that respect but yeah I, I, I certainly see what Dawn's saying because you know there's no doubt about it you, you if you don't have the physical attributes it could be difficult to play in the the NWSL it's a really physical league um, so yeah it's an it's an interesting thing and in terms of like the the loading etc you do or the you know strength work that you do with them is that position specific or is that personnel specific specific or is that body type specific what does that look like in order to um, adapt from player to player or position to position yeah so I work closely with the director of rehab um, and obviously herself and the athletic trainer will know everyone's injury history and um, from there we'll try and almost reverse engineer so uh, the software we use for the gym program I will put in the gym program maybe for the, the group and then we'll discuss who needs modifying uh, based on you know their uh, their their physical capabilities um, and injury history, so it's a it's collaborative that we we can do that, um, which is you know it, it's it's a good thing that we have that you know you've got a couple of different eyes who have a different opinion of what the players need to do, and because we all have access to the software, um, we we can collaborate and change. Uh, what we need to change based on that player, generally based on um, their physical attributes and their injury history. Okay. And so with that in mind, I imagine with certain players, if they've been through a long period of being injured, your focus might be on actually just trying to maintain them not getting injured again. Whereas someone who maybe has a really uncheckered pass, you might be looking for improvements within certain areas or make them more durable, robust moving forwards. Yeah. So if we use uh, like the eccentric strength, the Nord board and things like that, we can we can look at that and that's a marker for us. And obviously eccentric hamstring strength, but uh, little markers like that, we can see if someone's getting stronger um, based on the the data we collect from the software in the gym. Um, where are they getting stronger? Do they need more? Uh, you know, because what you'll find again is that. Um, disparity in, in the athletes that you know someone naturally is stronger than others some are not so where can we find those windows of opportunity and and work with a player to 
increased performance, um, which is always our goal, or maintain the health and increase performance. So um, a player that's a long-term injury, is their program's going to be remarkably different, but they may be doing more in the gym than the playing squad uh, on a time, you know, time basis. Um, so we try and find uh, what is best for the group, but also what is best for the individual. So we're, we're, we're individualizing as much as we can based on what we know uh, on the players, um, which again is, is something that may be very new to, um, to some players. So, uh, and new to us, if we don't know where you know, the, the players straight out of college, we're not going to have a lot of information on them. So we have to try and use informed choices to, to make or informed decisions as to where to place that player. Um, I think some people call it buckets, but, you know, do they need, is it more hamstring strengthening? Do they need more upper body strength? Uh, what does that player need? Uh, and how can we best track that and make changes where they need to be made? And one of the things you alluded to earlier was kind of the players that go away on international duty and stuff. And so I looked through kind of your, your player list earlier and you've obviously got some big names on there um, in terms of Megan Rapinoe and Karen Bardsley and stuff, who's obviously in goal, etc. For players like that, who obviously, particularly for, for Karen, she's going to be flying back to the UK to play in fixtures if she's selected for England squads, etc., um, or they're going to be going on camps and potentially in the World Cups or whatnot, playing a lot of games in a very short period of time. How do you prepare them physically for those tournaments or those flights or those deviants from a normal um, schedule? And how do you communicate that with national bodies to go, well, here's the data they're currently on, here's the things to be aware of, and I guess get informed of the data coming back so then you know where they're at when they return to you? Yeah, that's uh, we have good relationships with all the national uh, teams. They, with, When a player's gone into a camp, they'll send us the data before they'll be looking at that data. So um, US soccer have access to all our GPS. It's centralised. Um, so they'll be able to see what a player's doing. Um, and then we'll discuss that. Um, you know, the likes of Megan, who is obviously World Player of the Year, um, she'll be going off now uh, to the Olympics. So again, that's incredibly collaborative uh, because in the NWSL, those players are still owned by US Soccer and they're allocated players to the teams. So we have to support, um, you know, the US Soccer and Canada is the same as well. So uh, while the players training here, they, they don't really tend to interfere. But before we get into those periods of camps and tournaments, um, which I'm actually discussing uh, someone this afternoon, um, is what is best and how can we adapt? Um, we have the philosophy that, you know, we have to, uh, we also have our other players and we try and integrate those players in with um, with all the sessions to get the physical outputs out of them uh, and then top them up where they need to be. Because obviously, the likes of US soccer will want their player in a, they'll have certain criteria that they need that player to be in and we'll try and facilitate that the best we can as we do all the national uh, associations. But I think that's an area that's really improved, um, especially in the US and maybe that's due to the centralised contracts. But we, you know, England, uh, we, we, we'll speak to, when I worked at Utah, we had uh, the Scottish captain and we had an Icelandic player and they're all great. You know, yeah. we've got a, uh, some New Zealand internationals or 
we had one at Utah, we have one now, Rosie White. They're great at sending us all the information. And then obviously uh, we had a situation at a previous club where a player had flown five time zones, um, had played in international, their outputs were higher. Um, and it was like, okay, we just need to speak to the player and maybe just give them an extra day off, see how they're feeling, just do something like try and reintegrate them. Um, we came to that decision at a previous club that, you know, over certain times or periods, then that player should have, you know, 24 to 48 hours off uh, because it, it can be easy to say, I'll just come into training, but then, you know, your, your homeostatic or homeostasis is seriously disrupted or circadian rhythm, even through jet lag. So there's going to be all kinds of things going on. And that is always the question is, is that risky for the player? Um, so yeah, the things that we are, you know, how many time zones is someone flying through? Um, where have they traveled to? Uh, how can we best integrate the player into training, but also advise them? Um, some of the international um, organizations or international, uh, yeah, organizations, they will uh, they will do that for us. I think the US players are, are pretty good, the likes of Megan. They're pretty good when they come back into, into training. Uh, they know what they need to do. So uh, that's great. I think there's a lot of experience in that US squad. Um, and they know their own bodies and they know what they need to do. And uh, we just try and facilitate that with them so that we can have them back training for us. And in terms of the Olympics, um, is that going to clash with your season or is your season going to be done by the time the Olympics? No, the, the, the league intend to keep running. Um, so um, there are a few US players now that are playing in the UK, um, Man City, um, so um, it, it won't, the league will continue, but, you know, um, we won't lose that many players with the size of our squad. Uh, some teams that have a lot more internationals will probably lose half their squad. So uh, it's interesting because uh, obviously it was put back a year and there's been a lot of uncertainty and, you know, will it go ahead? Will it not go ahead? How are we going to, you know, uh, how are we going to facilitate this? Uh, I think it must have been frustrated for, for some frustrating for some players who have planned for last year. You know, everything is geared towards that and then suddenly it's cooled off and then you've got another year and there's all that uncertainty and not playing games. But uh, it, there, there might be a little bit of disruption, but I'm a bit biased to say that we've got a good squad um, that will we'll be able to cope with it. So um, it's always an interesting time when you have a major tournament going on uh, the league runs you know not so common in uh, England or the UK because um, tournaments tend to be in the summer so the league you know isn't on uh, whereas we're a bit different that you know when I when I came here it was on the back of the World Cup so when I arrived here we still didn't have Utah with three US internationals uh, so still didn't they weren't here uh, when I arrived so <laughs> it was interesting so how, how does that work then? Because I'd imagine if you've got those internationals in place, the reality of the situation is, particularly if it's a World Cup, although they want to be integrated in the group and they want to, you know, train and whatnot, there's also a point where their physiological needs and aim is going to be making sure they're in peak performance, ready to go over on the camp or ready for that tournament. So how do you manage that as a department in terms of, the team needs and the performance aspect, but then also 
there's quite high priority for them in a personal context and making sure that actually when you hand them over to US soccer as part of those centralized contracts, as you discuss, they are at the, the physical levels that they should be. Yeah, I think it's collaboration. It's, you know, all being able to work together for the, better, the, interest, the best interests of the player. The players are always central. Uh, so we'll always speak to them. We'll always try and speak to the player. How are you today? You know, how is there anything we should know? You know, uh, having good conversations with them to try and understand uh, where they are, where they're at. You know, uh, does the player need more rest? Can we try and, uh, obviously, someone comes back the first day, you're not going to throw them in a load of tests to see how they are, uh, depending on where they've just flown back from. Uh, so, yeah, we work very collaboratively with uh, with the international um, I mean, you can you can look at it this way that, you know, depending on where they are in the world, by the time they've actually flown back, um, they probably had three or four days rest before they even come into training, um, you know, with flights and everything else. So then the player might be good to train. Um, so, yeah, it's it's it, again, it's unique and it's an individual uh, because out here on the West Coast, we're further than anyone else in Portland. So we're further than anyone else. You know, we could fly to Orlando for a game and that would even New York, and that's a five, six hour flight for us going through, it's a test of my knowledge, I think three, possibly four time zones. Um, so we have to look at that um, and try and make some decisions on, on how we're going to work with the players to to have them on the pitch. I think, you know, it's been said a lot, but the most, most important ability is trainability, having them on the pitch, but we just need to work with the player and the international federations to make sure it's the right time for them. You know, there might, it might be that, again, it comes back to that thing. It may be that we need to modify some drills for them uh, when they come back in. So, yeah. I'm going to pick, on some, pick up on something you said there. So regarding the, the different areas you travel to, how much does that lay plans to what you're doing as well? Because I'd imagine, for example, New York during the winter period, freezing, covered in snow, you know, might be winds howling all over the place go down to Orlando, lovely, by the beach, really humid, very hot. Yeah. Um, you're going to have Denver, very high altitude, etc. How do you go around preparing um, the players to be robust when they're traveling all these different places to all different parts of the US that's going to present them with a variety of different physiological challenges? Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, we were altitude in, in Utah, uh, big discussion there about was it, well, we also had altitude and heat. Um, so, you know, we knew there were certain changes that may occur in the athlete. Um, I think you, you've got to, I mean, for an example, I went to, we played in Washington, where it'd be 2019 now, um, and I'd never known humidity like it. You know, by the end of the warm up, I was like, the sweat was pumping out of me and I, had, I wasn't, you know, I was just taking a warm up. Um, you go down to Orlando, it's very humid. Um, Utah, as I say, there's altitude and heat. Um, so you try and look ahead and prepare for those things. Um, again, for us, that you know, we could. It's not like when you're in League Two, you you might stay over the night before and then you travel back on the bus uh, afterwards. You know, we don't have that luxury. Um, so what we may do um, is stay over. You know, the day before a game, we may train. We might even go two days before a game. We might train in that area. Um, at the opposing club's facilities and then we play a game that could be in the evening, then the players are, you know, for example, that same time in Washington, our game got delayed till quarter past nine at night because of storms. 
Now, by the time we got out, it was 1 a.m. and we had to be at the airport for something like, you know, 6.30 a.m. Um, which again, I think I remember saying to Pace, don't worry about submitting sleep data. I all know you haven't had any, because uh, I didn't get any. Um, so yeah, they are challenges. Um, I think the more you know this league um, and the travel aspect of it, the more you can try and counteract things and find the what ifs, you know, um, because it'll always be curveballs. Uh, I know we flew to Orlando in my first season here and got diverted to Atlanta due to a storm because obviously you have storms and things like that. So you start, I think you learn, certainly I've learned in the last nearly two years, you, like where are we traveling? When are we traveling? Uh, where are we staying? What facilities does the hotel and how can we maximize that? So that when we used to come and play in Seattle, um, there was a small gym there. We would take the players into the, the gym, maybe some light stretching when we arrived um, or whatever we needed to do with those players. Some places we go to, there was a, there was a pool, um, you know, so um, we'll, we'll try and look ahead and think, okay, this is what we need to do uh, and adapt the best we can. You know, do, can we, and, and this is a discussion that comes up a lot, you know, on the time zones, um, how do we try and stay in line with, with the natural um, body clock of players? Um, I guess, again, that's quite individual. And, you know, three, two hours ahead isn't, that big it's just like flying to Europe for a game when you're probably getting to five hours ahead or you know six hours ahead or you know which would be Europe then yeah you've got to start looking at that so um they're questions that we we look try to look at in advance and try and adapt the best we can and I guess for you the travel thing must be one of the big you know one of the big things that you don't necessarily get in the UK obviously you do get travel but it will be as you said probably a bus there a bus on the way back and ultimately, you know, if you're regard maybe excluding Plymouth, which it takes a bit of a distance to get anywhere, if you're ever, uh, you know, Exeter five hours, you're probably around the Manchester region, and you're going to be able to get to most most games within that period. Whereas you said for those guys, you drive five hours in the US, probably not even out of state for a lot of places. No, no I drove for, uh, up to here, Washington from Utah. It was fourteen hours. I got caught in a snowstorm in the mountains and nearly died um, and I had to stop off one night and it was just like, you know, you're, you've gone through three states, you know, to, to get here. Um, beautiful drive, but, uh, you know, I'm not sure I'd be keen to do it again. So and people laugh at me here when I say, oh, we would do bus journeys for like nine hours. And they're like, where was that? I was like, oh, it was just to Morecambe. <laughs> like, you know, when you think of the size of England compared to the state of Texas. Um, yeah, they think, I think the travel one is, Everything's a flight here, really. Uh, Portland is the nearest to us, which I think is 90 minutes, uh, maybe a little bit more down the road. So that's a local one for us. Um, but uh, the travel when we go to the other side is is different. So I think we we obviously have a team administrator, general manager, and we'll try and work out what the best flights are for the players to, to get there, you know, and, and not have them up at 4.30 a.m. after a game. Um, so we have to collaborate on that because it's always about what's best for the players. You know, we know that from a recovery perspective, sleep is the is is the best thing that we can do. So then we've got to look at can we get a later flight? Is that feasible? You know, and then you've got travel day, which you know you've not really done a lot. You know, do we need a day off after that? How far have we travelled? Uh, when's our next game? You know, so if you've got a you could travel back on a Saturday night or you could travel on a Sunday. 
and you know six seven hours you could have a game on a tuesday and this is an example how much training time have you got with those players now that's a rare and extreme example because um in the times that has happened when we could travel so 2019 basically you possibly have a week on the road uh, and then you've got to adapt everything but um you know we 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 work with the nutritionist here as well uh, and certainly Sam, actually we started to utah and we will look ahead as to what um you know food is being provided what recovery food we can we can work with the players we in the tournament uh, when i was at utah we used recovery packs uh, that every player had after a game um you know because sleep and nutrition are your are your two constants really you've got to get those right before you start doing anything else so they're your big rocks and your low-hanging fruit get those right facilitate the player in, in in the best way you can to get those right and then everything else sort of comes on top of it and how does the kickoff times affect affect you because i'd imagine you know if you've got a 12 o'clock kickoff in one time zone but then in another one which is plus or take seven hours, it might end up being an eight or nine o'clock kickoff for you, your time. I'd imagine for a player's uh, biological body clock, that's, you know, that's going to be challenging for them to adapt to when, when they feel like they should be ready to play and when they aren't. So how do you go around managing players in that context? Uh, I think that's down to the individual. Uh, we'll, you know, we're obviously here to advise them. Um, you know, there is evidence uh, about how many time zones to fly and can you go to bed earlier the night before? Because uh, obviously we're not going uh, west, we're only ever going east. So when you're in the centre of the country, uh, you may be going, or even the Midwest, you may be going east or west. Um, so it's about being able to provide the player with the best evidence, um, evidence-based uh, strategies that are going to help them. Uh, generally, though, it, I, I, I haven't, and, and you know, I, I've never really found it much of a, an issue with the players because sometimes we will travel, uh, you know, two days before a game uh, to prepare. So you might have a travel day, then the next day you might train in the afternoon and you have a game, you know, could train on a Thursday, uh, fly on a Thursday, um, train on a Friday afternoon and play a game on a Saturday. So either way, you're, you're probably going to lose a, a day for the travel, depending on where you're going and, you know, you might train and travel or you might travel and train at the opposition. Um, but I, th I also think the players are quite well accustomed to it here. Yeah, not like us uh, UK guys. If you start changing that time zones, wouldn't they always hit you for a certain degree? Yeah, um, I think I, for me, at the start, I was like, whoa. But, I, I, you know, if you're two hours ahead or an hour ahead, it isn't. It's like fly, It's like going from London to... Uh, Madrid I think is an hour ahead um, you know it is you know, Champions League they do it in and out in a day you know when you're getting over maybe a couple of time zones that's that's a different different ball game yeah and one thing I think is obviously very um, prevalent in the US is kind of the draft system which is the ability for players to go through college and then obviously they get drafted to a team etc how hands-on, and I appreciate probably before COVID, how hands-on can you get with the players coming out of the college system and how much in-depth data can you get? I know, obviously, the NFL level, they have the combines, they have pro days, etc., which allows scouts to go and watch them and whatnot. But in your context, how much data are you able to gather around these players to be informed when you are then looking to draft them? Yeah, I mean, I'm... 
I've never really been involved in that um, because of the way it works. If I knew someone at one of the colleges, then maybe I would ask. Uh, but I, I, it's not something until we get the player in here, then we start to assess them ourselves. Um, which I've always found strange. Uh, I must admit, I've found that different. Uh, but I haven't, in my time here, I've not had a university that I've contacted and said, or have even sent us any physical data on them. I did know one of the players that got drafted because I knew her college strength sports scientist. Um, and he had texted me saying, you know, um, this player is very good and told me, but I'm not sure how common that is. And we do talk about that a lot about shouldn't we be provided with injury histories because it's almost a player has to come in and tell you everything. Of course, human nature is you're going to forget the ankle sprain that you had five years ago, three years ago in college. Uh, but that could have significant impact on your, you know, if poorly rehabbed or whatever, you know, on your movement patterns. And, you know, so that could be difficult because you have to unravel it all. And, you know, uh, the players do have obviously medicals here when they arrive and the start of the season. So um, physicals and medicals. So we start to get that data in, but we don't actually get it until they're here. Um, what's unique about this league is every team starts pre-season on the same day. Um, you know, across the league. So, you know, there are times when you can and can't, uh, you know, you can and can't ask players to do things. Um, and it's just the way things work here. Now, players are excellent. They're really um, compliant with everything, but league rules do dictate what you can and can't do. So for an example, if the off season, which is a little bit shorter this year, but, um this year was probably one of the only years because of the way the changes in contracts that we can give them off-season work and track that across the off-season. Before that, you couldn't do that from the minute players finished in, let's say, October. You, you couldn't do anything. You couldn't ask them to do anything until they arrived back in maybe March, So, which is unique. Uh, but generally, players are very compliant. And when, we're, when someone's been drafted, which is around about January, in my experience, we'll make contact with them uh, and say, look, you know, Let's get going. Um, but it is optional. So that, that's another thing. I thing. suggest if you've just been drafted or you're coming back for pre-season, you might want to get fit because otherwise it's going to present some issues. Yeah. Yeah. And the college game is so different. You know, it's like a three-month season. Whereas coming into full-time training and the intensity of that, then, you know, it can be a little bit of a rabbit in headlights moment for the, the young rookie players because like, whoa, you know, gasping for air because... They may not have been used to that. Uh, so these are things that, you know, we can monitor. And, uh, and, 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 and I think this is my second, I guess it's my third year in the league, really. Um, or two and a half, should we say. Um, you get to know these things and understand them because it is a different system and certainly something I had to learn very quickly. I think I think that's fascinating. Like I, I look at, I, I really like American sports. I, I you know, watch NFL, watch NBA, all, all that type of stuff. And you think about the amount of data, even when you watch the combines and you watch the people in the Indianapolis Colts things, they're doing 40-yard dashes, they're doing bench press, they're doing movement drills, they're doing jump drills and stuff. So, and I always think that there's a game to be played where some people don't do it at certain times, don't do certain drills, but do it other times because then they can up their scores and stuff. So the fact that you actually get very limited information in terms of data and in terms of particularly injury history, which, again, could be quite a severe one if all of a sudden this person's had two hamstring strains 
and you know we're doing a lot of high velocity running that's a that's an issue which needs to be addressed yeah yeah and so then we have to I guess unpeel the onion and try and get to the bottom of it and try and work out uh, you know where this player is Uh, but that comes from having uh, robust systems in place uh, for pre-season you know how much information are you going to take and uh, or where you can get that information from uh, obviously the injury history is going to be through the person um, you know and like I say you, you can't remember every injury but it may influence things so uh, we try and be as robust as possible um, and get as much information as we can from the player and then once we start to do physical profiling and testing we can we can see where that player's at um like i say coming from a college system to the pro game is 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 so different so i think you have to be patient in terms of your transition working from men's game uh, moving into the women's game in terms of biological differences or or things that you've seen between the sexes what things have really stood out to you and what things maybe do the women's side do better than the men's side or considerations they've had or is there anything that kind of really stood out to you in terms of learnings for you um so i mean this question comes up all the time there's obviously clear anatomical and biological differences um but i don't think that makes anyone less uh you know relevant in say something like strength relative to that person relative to the athlete absolute of course yeah uh, but relevant is different i think um when we look at thresholds of say let's say speed or high speed running um is there's no definitive literature that says you know you should use this threshold on a male or, or female as far as i'm aware um so you know maybe are they too high uh, you know sprint being over a certain velocity uh, speed is is that too high um i i, I guess I, I, I can't answer that but i think um i think it can be a bit more tactical um in the women's game because you know people are still learning and so you'll get a much more certainly coaches i've worked with tend to be more tactically orientated um but i know i wouldn't say i've seen any any clear differences when i'm lucky enough my roles in the US to work with the best players in the world. Um, you know, and that's not a grand statement. It's a, it's a fact. Um, you know, multiple World Cup and Olympic, World Cup winners, Olympic medalists. Um, so no, it, it's, it's, I think the easiest way is apart from the biological and anatomical differences we were well aware of. Uh, no, I, I actually think the women's game doesn't get enough credit. Um, that is changing. I think the 2019 World Cup was fantastic for for the women's game but you know in the uk people really started to to look at it and go you know this is good this is this is good to watch so um when you work with you know the four times world cup winners uh, you know in the us it's like okay you know the, these players know what they're doing uh, but i think again it comes down to an individual they're still humans they're just you know um they're just um women who play sport i work with women who play sport i don't work with women footballers i work with women who play sport for their job same as when i worked with guys just work with young guys who play football for a job uh, now obviously you've got to be exceptionally good at it to get to that level but it's still a human element there's still there's still human beings and um 
I think I think sometimes in the women's game, uh, the women are a little bit more open and receptive. Um, because I, I would say that, you know, the tide is changing a lot. And with Dawn going to England and some of the stuff they're doing over there with the regional talent centres, you know, the female game is getting used to sports science and strength and conditioning now. In some countries, five years ago, they weren't even interested. So um, I think the dynamics are changing, um, which is interesting. Yeah, I, I see a lot more uh, women's teams popping up. Um, in terms of, you know, the professional clubs moving it either under their banner um, and taking over another team or just investing more heavily on on those areas, um, which I think is only a positive. And one thing I found fascinating watching the Women's World Cup 2019 from a tactical point of view, seemed like the US almost had, I guess, for an American term, power plays throughout the game where it'd be like a first 10 minutes it was flat out, we're going to press, we're going to be aggressive, then we might ease off into rhythm of the game. Another 25, five minutes flat out, ease off just before half time. It seemed like it was a concerted effort from the team to almost up the intensity, um, which I thought was a really interesting concept to how they used that to obviously do really well during specific periods within the games. Mm. Um, which I imagine on a physiological level is probably something that they've prepared the players for, for that up and down trajectory. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, the work that they do and the work that they're doing at the moment is all geared towards the Olympics. It's all geared towards the World Cup. I think, you know, uh, for any player, your highest honour is playing for your country. But I think in the US, it's it's when you represent the USA, that's a, that's a big thing, uh, you know, and there's a lot of expectation on these players. They've got to go and win the Olympics. You know, Canada might disagree with that because they're big rivals or, you know, um, other teams might disagree with that. But I think being in the USA and seeing it, it is expected that you win the Olympics. So you have that added pressure as well. Okay, so talk about pressure. We'll, we'll discuss this quickly before, before I let you head off. Obviously, you mentioned with your PhD around pressures of, you know, multidisciplinary support staff. Um, in comparison to the players themselves. So from the research you've currently read and the research you've currently done, what at the moment are your key, take key, key takeaways from those two areas with, with the people you've spoken to? Yeah, um, so, so there's a real lack, I think there's only one, possibly two papers, maybe one, that actually looks at elite support stuff. Um, I think firstly, you need to define elite, but they actually spoke to more performance directors than you know people on the ground. Um, so uh, one thing we noted was, uh, and it wasn't my paper, by the way, it was Rachel Arnold's, but one thing that was noted was that um, the stressors, organizational stressors on uh, elite staff are the same or similar to those of players, you know, pressure on contracts you know, um, lifestyle influences to travel, all of that kind of stuff is factored in. And I think support staff can often maybe be a little bit forgotten about that. You know, there are, there are clubs that, you know, um, some support staff are on almost football contracts uh, as opposed to, you know, organizational contracts, if you want to differentiate between those two. Um, so that adds stress onto the, the the job and things that are going on. So um, I'm looking at, you know, and sort of health and well-being um, 
how good is it for the or maybe not so good for the elite support staff the environment that they're in because you're always you know are you looking after yourself uh, you know mental health is incredibly prominent now uh, it is a very intense and very chaotic environment you know i could be dealing with uh, funny enough i was listening to frank lampard talking on a uh, on a other podcast i don't can't remember what it was a few months ago uh, and he said that you know when he took over as manager suddenly 40 odd people want his attention every day and i was thinking that's no different to you know your performance director or your sports scientist or wherever because you've got the players you have the the staff you might have uh, front office staff to deal with you have suppliers you have all of this going on um which adds to the the, the stress of the job um so we're looking at it from that angle is okay if, if they're identical then what can we do we, we you know we all want to look after our players but what can we do to work with uh, the elite support staff to support them the other side to that is like does um you know the the health and well-being of elite support staff contribute to success on the pitch um, and that's an area again that's something we're exploring at the moment i'm, I'm still in the very early stages of my phd um so these are a lot of questions that are coming up that we're seeing. This is far broader than what we expected. And that's because it's hard because of the lack of research. But we're now starting to see, okay, so are we talking about support stuff? Are we talking about support stuff and players? Are we talking about the organization as a whole? Because no, you know, if you work in the post office, there's a hierarchical structure, uh, you know, from postman on the ground to manager to senior manager to whatever, you know, it's very... Uh, structured that way it's not like that in in, in football organizations and uh, sporting organizations and sometimes it can be forgotten about that they are organizations so one thing that i've been thinking about a lot is sports psychology versus organizational or clinical or different things performance anxiety is different to uh, clinical anxiety of course so can you support the support staff with organizational um, interventions or strategies, whatever way you want to look at that, because is it more of an organizational thing or is it clinical or sports related? Uh, I would probably argue anecdotally that it's more an organizational issue. You know, we hear a lot about culture and, and you know, and there's a lot of books written about it, which are great and I love them, but it depends what climate you're operating in. And if you're not operating in a climate that is um, supportive of a culture or driving a culture by daily behaviors and values and beliefs and everything else, then, you know, trying to implement something could go a little bit pear-shaped. Um, so that's where we're at with it. Again, it's very early, but it's, it's interesting that there isn't, there's a lot of um, research in head coaches and coaches and coaching staff of, you know, their uh, perceptions of, um, stress and all the things that coaches go through but isn't just nothing in 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 the support staff now again you've got to define support staff could you be encompassing physios and athletic trainers and you know doctors and everybody else in there and some research you know you have to be critical uh, but some that i've seen doesn't really touch on the people that are uh, on on the ground so that's that's where i'm going with it it was just one of those things i've been offered phds in physiology which i would argue is more my area um and i saw this one and i thought you know what that's an area that's just not been looked at you know having been in this environment for many years now um i think it's it's made me look at things from a different angle uh, certainly the psychological side of it 
Um, so it's, like I say, it's early days, but you know, I've had two long meetings today with the university about where we're going with this and, and what we, uh, and, and how we can impact through research. And I think that's the underpinning thing. Uh, how can we impact, um, you know, you'll hear that Google and these companies talk about how they, how they work with their employees and then, um, you know, your support staff are still employees. So, um, as much as coaching staff and players, so it's trying to, trying to find out, I think it's interesting that, you know, the one paper that's out there does make, a, um, to show that there is the same organizational stresses on players as there are, um, as support staff. Listen, I could sit and talk about this all day and I think it might be, we've, we've not touched on a lot of your experiences and whatnot, but um, I think time's obviously cl closely closing in on us. So um, I think that might be for another podcast when maybe further down the line, we can go into it more. Um, the one question that I have for everyone, um, and this could prove quite challenging for you, which is who's the best player you've worked with or against? Or who's the best coach you've worked with or against and why? Oh, well, um, I don't think I can answer that. Uh, I would say I, I, every coach has taught me something different. Every coach has taught me something different. It would, it would be hard to say, uh, you know, every player has taught me something different. You're constantly learning. So I wouldn't want to, um, I wouldn't want to, um, I wouldn't want to name names as such because, you know, that would be unfair. I've learned from everyone. What I will say is I was very, very lucky at Celtic to when Brendan Rodgers was there and his staff. And I think they helped me understand uh, sort of a tactical periodization and that side of it. Well, I wouldn't say it's true to Friday's work, but it started to make me think about the holistic side of things in player physical development, if you want to put it that way. Um, so that was a real, and I've said it a few times, that that was a real key influence uh, to me, uh, Brendan and all his staff, some who are still there and everybody at Celtic, but the other coaches that I've worked under have all had diff different philosophies, different views, different ways of using sports science. And from that, I think I've, I've really learned from everyone. So it, it would just be so difficult because I've been blessed to work with so many world-class players um you know from from players in fact you know players I work with at Exeter have now gone on and made full international debuts and playing in the Premier League uh, that's rewarding uh, for me to you've had like a 0.5 percent influence in their career but you know I find that more rewarding so uh, I wouldn't be able to put it out there um I couldn't I just couldn't pick someone uh, I say I've had influences and uh, you know I spoke there but um, no it's difficult to answer <laughs> no that's fine listen Andrew I really appreciate your time and though loads of amazing content there and as I said before I, I think definitely if you're up for it at some point we can get in touch again in the future and have another sit down because we haven't gone into half of the experiences and whatnot you've had so it'd be great to have you back on my pleasure I look forward yeah, to, to it. speak to you soon see ya Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family.
I'll see you next week.